Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. We are joined today by Dr. Mark Faber. He is known as Dr. Doom and also known for his unconventional investment strategies. And you also know him as the editor of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. In this episode, we do a deep dive into the global economy with Dr. Faber, and he explains why the rich have never had it this good. We also got into his criticism of central banks and his thesis around QE infinity and why once you start the money printing, it is difficult to stop. We also got into inflation and why he thinks inflation is going to be a big problem ahead. I really enjoyed this episode with Dr. Faber. I learned a lot. He left me with a lot to think about, and I hope you enjoy this one too. Dr. Mark Faber, editor of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. It is so great to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today, Dr. Faber. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. And good day to all your viewers and listeners. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, from Chiang Mai. That's in the north of Thailand in the Golden Triangle. Okay, so it's nighttime for you. Awesome. Yes, it's nighttime. I work at night. Oh, okay. So a bit of a night owl then. Uh, something like this, yes. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Dr. Faber. And I want to start where I always start with my guest, and that is to get their big picture macro view framework of the world. We can talk about the economy and then we can get into markets, but let's start there with the big picture macro view. And one of the things about this show, Dr. Faber, you can take all the time you need to set the table, if you will. Okay, uh, fine. I mean, the global view is very complex because some countries are doing reasonably well and uh, some countries were in sort of recession and are in the process of bottoming out, while other countries are topping out in terms of economic prosperity and uh, especially in terms of stock markets. I mean, if we look at the world uh, in terms of financial uh, issues, we can observe that the U.S. is now at the record high both nominally and relative to Europe and especially relative to emerging economies. Emerging economies in terms of stocks have performed uh, miserably in the last few years with few exceptions. But uh, the U.S. is expensive compared to, say, China, Hong Kong, uh, Asian stock markets and also Latin America. So... We have a very diverging, uh, very diverging trends, uh, economically speaking, and also financially. And uh, in terms of the global economy, uh, the experts they always look at GDP. GDP is a very vague measurement of economic activity. Uh, what is more important in a society is whether the standards of living of the average person, of the typical household, whether the average standard of living of that household is improving or worsening. And there, I have to say, you have very diverging trends from what the world of economists will tell you because they say GDP is growing when, in fact, the typical family in America 
is struggling economically speaking because their wages have risen less than the cost of living. And now someone may come and say, oh, the inflation rate is coming down and real wa and wages uh, are now exceeding the rate of inflation in terms of increases. But the fact is, wherever you look, the cost of living in uh, most advanced economies is about 25% higher than it was before COVID. There's no denying about this, even though food prices may have eased recently somewhat. But in general, if you look at the overall cost of living of people, it's way up. And the inconveniences to live have also gone up. Just go through an airport nowadays and compare it to, say, 20 or 30 years ago, before 9-11 uh, or before COVID. Everything is much more inconvenient. So my view is that, economically speaking, we have recovered from the throff in 2021-2022. But uh, it depends also what kind of financial position you had. Let's say if you have no money and you borrowed money against your house at variable rates, or you have credit card debts, the rise in interest rates is hurting you. On the other hand, if you're wealthy, and I consider myself in fortunate uh, financial conditions, and you had deposits, as I always have because of the nature of my business, then uh, the last one and a half years have been very favorable because before on my deposits, I got hardly anything, and in Europe I had negative interest rates, but now I get like 5%, and I have some deposits that I put in place at 6% uh, late last year. So in my condition, uh, life has, uh, in terms of income, unearned income, investment income has improved because the capital of my company is mostly on short-term deposits. So, as I said, the economies touch different households in very different ways. And it's very difficult to say, oh, everything is bad or everything is good. What is good in terms of investments is, in my opinion, the fact that in Europe and in Asia and Latin America and in emerging markets anyway, in general, that the valuations have come down do relatively interesting uh, junctures. In other words, relative to the US, I could say that all emerging markets are inexpensive and that the US is expensive. So the, the valuations in some cases are now much more attractive than two or three years ago. But economically and geopolitically seen, I'm not very optimistic because I think uh, there are some people in the world, especially in the American State Department, that want war. Whether they make money out of the war or not, I'm, I'm not sure about that. The industrial-military complex makes money for sure. But they want war maybe to retain the hegemony of the U.S. or the, 
the superpower status, which is difficult to argue for in a world where you have huge countries. These are empires, India and China with over a billion people and uh, a rising industrial power in these countries. It's difficult to remain the kind of global superpower. But maybe they, these people have the intention to have a preemptive war before it's too late. So I don't know. Uh, but it adds an element of uncertainty, especially with the mess we have now in the Middle East. But we also have the mess in uh, Ukraine, which is not just a war between Ukraine and uh, Russia. It's essentially NATO against Russia. And who is the leader of NATO? It's the U.S. So these are complex issues. We have also the issue of uh, the long-term cycles of inflation and interest rates. If we take the last peak of inflation as 1980, during the 70s we had accelerating inflation, and we had a rising interest rate cycle, which had begun during the Second World War. It peaked out in 1980. Since then, uh, we had a period of not deflation, but disinflation. In other words, the consumer price index continued to go up, maybe much more than what the government published. But uh, we had asset inflation, and uh, we had at the same time falling uh, rate of price increases in the system, partly because of the opening or the joining of China into the global economy, which reduced prices of manufactured goods. And as a result, interest rates fell and reached the low in May, August 2020. Since then, we have rising inflation and rising interest rates. And these cycles, they tend to last uh, 25, 40 years, 50 years sometimes. And so my view would be that inflation is not under control. It's come down recently from a peak in 2022-23, but prices have not gone back to where they were before... Uh, COVID. And in my view, with the current monetary policy, and believe me, money is not tight if the stock market makes a new high. And money is not tight if bond spreads between low-quality bonds and high-quality bonds are so thin. And liquidity is not tight if the VIX index is at the current low level. It may, money may, may become tight in future, but at the present time, there's plenty of liquidity everywhere. And you look at the money market funds and you look at uh, the cash that is generated by corporate, uh, corporates, by corporations that have money on deposit. It's a huge kind of liquidity that's floating around the world. So in short, it depends where you sit. Are you poor in this world or are you rich? The rich have never had it this good in their lives. 
as a result of the stock market increases at support. Now, some rich people, they own commercial properties. That hasn't been very good. But uh, traditionally, commercial properties are owned by uh, institutions, pension funds, and some well-to-do people own properties, yes, but they also own residential, which has done well. And uh, the... And the funds also hold um, commercial properties like REITs and so forth. So in general, poor people haven't done very well in this world, <laughs> but the wealthy people have done very well. Yes, so there's a divergence in the economy. And I think I've heard you say this before, Dr. Faber. Is this what you've coined as a, a silent depression? Was that... A way you've characterized it? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a depression for ordinary people. Uh, the jobs market is reasonably strong, but uh, many people have two jobs to survive. And if you go and talk to working uh, men or working women, uh, their lives, after paying tax and everything, they have nothing at the end of the month. They live, there's never been a, such a high percentage of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck before. That tells you something about the true state of the economy and not the BS that the government always publishes. And I can tell you, I'm an economist. I read all the books about the economics and so forth. I studied subject relatively carefully. But the most important is to observe the behavior of people. Uh, how much money do they have to, to spend for spending discretionary items? And how do they spend, say, uh, in Thailand, as an example, people get paid towards the end of the month. And the retirees in Thailand, that is a big portion of the economy, they get their pensions from Europe or the U.S. usually somewhere between the first of the months and the fifths of the months. So the spending at the beginning of the months until about the 15th, 20th is relatively strong. Towards the end of the months, people have no more money, so they don't they don't go out to restaurants anymore. You can you can see it. It's a market difference, and. Uh, I know many bar and the restaurant owners to tell me the same story. After the middle of the month, business slows down. Mm, makes sense, yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to explore a little bit further with you, Dr. Faber, is you were talking about you look at the long-term cycles and you look at the long-term cycles of inflation and interest rates. And it sounds to me like when I'm listening to you that um, inflation might be coming down for now, but that's going to be a longer term problem. I want to explore that with you, but also in the context of our debt situation here in the US, beginning of the year across $34 trillion. How do you think about that with our debt situation? I would just love to hear your viewpoint there. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a good point that you just made. Well, first of all, cycles do exist in economic life and they've been observed already and in the antiquity and so forth with the seven fat years and the seven lean years. Now, whether they happen 70 years and 70 years, who knows? 
but uh, cycles of prosperity and depressions have always been with us. And secondly, uh, when the cycle has been prolonged through fiscal policies, let's say, even the economy is about to go into recession, if you throw sufficient money at the system, you can keep the patient alive for longer. You understand? You can uh, boost the economy, say in America, during COVID, you just threw money at uh, the unemployed and at uh, people with disability and at the immigrants and so forth and so on. And so they had spending power. Now <laughs> you have to see uh, who benefits the most from fiscal deficits if you just transfer money to lower income groups. Yeah, the ones that really benefit from that are the wealthy people that own the shares in Walmart and Nordstrom and in Amazon and so forth and so on. Because the lower income recipients, they must go and shop. They must go and buy their hamburgers in Burger King or in McDonald's. And so the McDonald's is of this world. They can increase prices on their hamburgers. And we we know exactly what the price of a hamburger was three years ago and what it is today and so forth. They've took advantage of that and increased prices. That's why we have essentially a relatively high consumer price inflation. Less in goods, but more so in services. Now, uh, regarding the debt if a society has, as a result of wars, say high debts, because during war times the government must spend a lot of money on the army and on the war machine, and so debts uh, can accumulate as they did in America in, after the World War One and Second World War. But then uh, they are governments that are responsible and they bring down the debt through essentially tax increases and uh, through repayments of the debts. In other words, they can uh, create budget surpluses. Fiscal policies are then very conservative, and the government earns more and takes more in taxes in than they spend. This is now not the case. And the debt, as of today, for peacetime, is exceedingly high in the U.S. and other Western European countries as well as in Japan. So, the governments can do from here on, uh, take three measures. They can either default. A default is very messy. And I think if the U.S. government defaulted, uh, the status of having the reserve currency would be ending, I mean, for sure. Uh, the second thing is that they can do is increase taxation significantly. <laughs> As you know, uh, the taxation in democracies is uh, in general increased. Uh, we had very low taxes in the 19th century. In none of the Western countries, including the U.S., during the 19th century were 
total tax payments more than 12% of GDP. Now, in most countries, there are around 50% of GDP, certainly in Europe. In the US, it's a bit less, but with local taxes and so forth, it's probably much more. Now, uh, they can uh, increase taxation, but in the current situation, to increase taxation very much would be politically difficult because most taxes always fall on the middle class and on the working class. Whereas wealthy people, they can hire an army of accountants and uh, auditors and lawyers to avoid taxation. So if you look at, say, the income of well-to-do people, the, the percentage that they pay in terms of tax is very low compared to middle-class people, to uh, working people. And so the increase in taxation would be politically dynamite, say, for Biden to do that now. And the next president is unlikely to do it anyway. The third option, which every country has done in history, is to print money. Everyone has done it. Because it's a tax that people don't see. They don't get the form that says, you have to pay 50% of your income in tax, or whatever. now you have to pay 55%. That they don't see. They, As long as they get the salary increase, say 5%. They don't realize that the cost of living is going up by maybe 7% or 10%. It's not so obvious to them. So the easiest for any empire, for any government, is to create inflation. And that is what I'm convinced the U.S. will do. In fact, I'd guess that they have no other option because you understand, if you increase interest rates very significantly, and I have to point out, I started to work in 1970 on Wall Street. So I experienced the whole inflationary cycle uh, from the late 60s to 1980. And each time inflation went up, say until 1969, and then it slowed down, and then it went up again uh, until 1974. Each time people thought, Oh, this is peak inflation. Offer will come down. Yeah, it came down and interest rates came down. But then the next push upwards came. Because although interest rates in the 70s were much higher than they are now, uh, they were monetary policies were never really tight, tight. And they are not tight, tight at the present time. Nowhere in the world. Nowhere in the world. So I think inflation will re-accelerate towards in the second half of this year. And thereafter, whoever is president, they're going to print money like crazy. Hey there. I hope that you are enjoying listening to this episode. If you can, please take a moment to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you could leave us a rating and a review, it would help us so much in continuing to grow the show and bringing some incredible guests for these longer form discussions. Thank you so much for your support. And I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. When you're talking about reacceleration of inflation, what kind of, I mean, have you put a, a number on it or an estimate, like a ballpark? Like what kind, are we talking about high single digits? Could it go to double digits? How are you 
thinking about that? Or is that even too early to even contemplate? If you go to Turkey and you walk around Istanbul and someone told you inflation is at 100%, you'd say, well, but the traffic runs smooth, smoothly. I mean, in Istanbul, it never runs smoothly. But lots of cars on the road. And the marketplace functions, and they have an inflation of around 100% and interest rates around 100%. Tito for Argentina and Venezuela and so forth. So the rate of inflation in the U.S. could easily go way above 20% and higher. It's very, you understand, in a system, once you begin to print money, as the U.S. did uh, with QE1 in December 2008, I said at the time, this is not QE1 or QE2, it's QE infinity. Once you embark on printing money and fiscal deficits, it's very difficult to bring it back down. Very difficult. Because the system gets used to it. You understand? The pension funds in the US, they are, most of them are underfunded, as you know, especially the state pension funds. Because whatever the government touches, it messes up. The private pension funds are in a better position. They're not fully funded. But the state pension funds are in a horrific situation especially now that commercial real estate prices have collapsed. Some buildings are selling for less than half what they were valued at in 2018. I've written about this. I've studied the matter. So the pension funds are in a, in a poor condition. Now, if they had huge losses on their securities portfolio, stocks and bonds, they'd be in big trouble. So what do you do? You print money so it keeps an artificially high level. And in that scenario, Dr. Faber, um, going back to like earlier in the conversation, that would the printing money, the inflation that would only benefit the asset holders that much more compared to like more of like the working class, wouldn't Correct. it? I mean, so there is a very good book about inflation. It's not widely read, but anyone who has... Uh, an interest in economics, I strongly recommend to read it. It's called The Economics of Inflation by Professor Constantino Bresciani Turoni. He wrote about the German hyperinflation between 1918 and 1924 because he was working for the Reichsfinanzministerium at the time. In fact, I have this is I keep it behind me because this is one of the best books on economics and inflation that has ever been written. In short, this is the uh, The economics uh, of inflation. There we go. Okay, Bresciano Turoni. Anyway, so he analyzed the impact of inflation on stock prices, on the foreign exchange market, on gold on everything and on society and on the wealth distribution because during hyperinflation or accelerating inflationary times, a lot of mergers and acquisitions occur. And there's the concentration of wealth, precisely what we have today. 
a tremendous concentration of wealth among, say, 500 families. But not only in the U.S., it's the same in Europe. You go, you just have to go to luxury restaurants, the highest-end restaurants. They're packed full. For the middle class, they're all at McDonald's in relatively in, inexpensive restaurants. Or they get takeaway, takeouts. Uh, in other words, they eat at home. Um, you mentioned... Um this book that it was writing about like the the impacts on, on stocks and and um foreign exchange and, and and gold and i i know you as a precious metals investor i believe that is something that you always recommend gold is a popular topic on this show can we can we talk about that i want to hear more on the thesis there um and just want to get your viewpoint on gold as well well i i think that uh a fair statement is that if you trust central banks, you're stupid. I think that is uh, the message because anyone who listens to your program, uh, I assume they're some, they are above, say, 40 years old. Some are younger, but, but say the age group is... Uh, an uh, aging group, not as old as I am, let's say, uh, getting there. I hope so. Anyway, they will remember, say, I grew up in the 50s, how much something cost in 1950 and how much it cost in the year 2000 and how much it cost today. They will remember uh, how in, say, 1971, how expensive the typical house was in the U.S. and how much it was 20 years ago and how much it is today. And their grandparents can tell them, I bought this house for, say, $50,000 and now it's worth a million dollars and so forth. So this wealth increase through assets has been with us. And uh, frequently the Fed or always, the Fed never paid any attention to asset inflation. They only pay attention to consumer price inflation. But the high asset inflation has one problem, and this is the affordability. When I grew up, I want to tell you exactly what the situation was. I finished my studies, and when I started to work, I started to work first in New York, but then in Switzerland. And in Switzerland, I rented a small, a two-bedroom apartment in the center of the city, best location behind the main theater. I mean, this would be in America, like behind the Metropolitan or so. And the rent was like 7% of my income, of my salary. Show me anywhere in America or in the world a city that is important where someone can live in the best location for 7% of his income. As it's not existent. Salary. Doesn't exist. Doesn't oh, exist. This is the creation of the Federal Reserve. They have made it next to impossible for young people who start at the typical salary. I'm not talking about some salaries that are paid to lawyers at the present time or to Wall Street um, 
employees, fund managers and brokers and so forth. But it's a, a typical household where the typical person, the young person goes to work, he has to pay 30, 40, 50% of his income for his apartment. Yeah. But people think that this is okay. They don't complain to the fact about this. I'm about the only one that brings up the issue that the inflation manifests itself not only in rising uh, food prices, in rising uh, insurance premiums, in rising taxes, in rising uh, fees for everything, with tunnel fees and uh, public transportation, but a manifestation is the affordability. When I started to work with 25 hours, I mean, that was the typical median uh, average. With 25 hours of work, I could buy a Dow Jones. I could put my money at 6% on deposit, and during 10 years, the interest go went up to over, to at one stage, actually, more than 20% on deposits. Now, young people... They have to spend more than 150 hours to buy a Dow Jones. I could buy it at 25 hours in the 70s. Because stocks were cheap in the 70s and now they're expensive. And for the same for housing. I, uh, housing was relatively inexpensive. Also paintings, I have a lot of collections of paintings and so forth from the 70s. They were affordable now. Uh, people have no money at the end of the month. That's why so many young people live with their parents. They can't afford to live in on their own. Another question for you as a millennial, um, too, like I, I think you're highlighting a lot of challenges, um, you know, my peer set and younger face, especially around like housing affordability and, and whatnot, um, is like our future. Because my assumption, Dr. Faber, is I'm, I'm paying into social security I don't think I'm going to get any social security, and I don't know that I don't know how that's going to play out or be reconciled over time when that, that becomes an issue. But how do you think about maybe some of the longer term the, issues you will facing get younger your people? You will get your social security. The question is how much money will be worse at that time, or will it be a lot less than what I paid it, in. It, it will maybe it will be nominally more. So, in real terms, probably less. And by the way, whereas everybody says, hurrah, the stock market's making new highs, in real terms, inflation adjusted, the stock market in the U.S. is not at the new high. So it's not in a new high if you adjust for inflation, you're saying? You have to, in the inflationary times, you have to adjust everything for the rate of inflation. Now, the rate of inflation that the government publishes vastly, I repeat, vastly understates the cost of living increases. There's statistics about this. The Fed knows that. The Fed introduced the CPI and altered the CPI to make, a, make inflation look low. Um, going back, though, I, I don't know if I got the full answer for you from, from gold. Can, I do you want to hear yes. more on gold? And, yes. and it's so, kind of been yes. going sideways in recent years. Just want to hear more of your views on gold. <laughs> yes, I apologize. Because it's okay. I, I it was it with... was on me too. I <laughs> I'm enjoying the conversation and listening to no, you. So I apologize, but the the point I wanted to make is, 
you shouldn't trust central banks. The central bank system was created to print money. That should be clear. And we had huge price increases since the Fed was started, whereas in the 19th century, growth in America, the population went from 4 million in 1800 to 80 million in 1900. Railroads were built, roads were built, cars were invented, the steel industry thrived, and, 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 and. And GDP per capita grew at a faster pace than did in the 20th century. And price stability. By 1900, prices were no higher than they were in 1800. Because the evil robber barons, they created railroads and lowered the cost of transportation massively. Massively. But the, the woke society and the socialists and the communists... They all accused the robber barons for having abused <laughs> the population. They made life easier for the population. Otherwise, if the life of the population in America had been so hard, why do you think so many people from Europe went to the U.S. at the time? Do you have a lower standard of living or a higher standard of living? Higher you standard. have to sometimes think a little bit about these things. Why do people move to the U.S.? In those days, it was because the U.S. offered better opportunities than in Europe. And the real wages went up in the 19th century, especially during the days of the Robert Barons between 1870 and 1900. Now people move to the U.S. because they get social security in the U.S. The government throws money at them so they can spend and as a result of the spending, the government can show great GDP growth. But gold in this situation keeps its value. I started to work in 1970. At that time, you could buy an ounce of gold for $35, okay? $35. And now gold is around $2,000. So in my life... Uh, say the cost of living has gone up uh, by maybe about the price of gold or less. I think gold has kept its value. It's not the case for corn, soybeans, and wheat. Uh, agricultural commodities are still very depressed at the present time. That's why depends what you want in life. I hold significant positions in gold, silver, platinum for securities and insurance policy because I believe that the central banks will mess up everything. Everything. So I want to have something safe. But you understand, safe. What is safe in this world? During COVID, what they did is to lock in people into their homes, and if someone had the uh, dare to go out in his garden to have a cigarette, they arrested him in Britain. So who, who would prevent Mr. Trudeau from going to you and telling you, you have to surrender your gold and to give it to Ukraine, to all the Ukrainians. Collect the gold and transfer it to Zelensky, yes. That would be a good idea for the, all these 
really stupid people in government. In government, a characteristic is that in business, the capable people are going up in the organization. In government, the most stupid people go up. But you look like astounded. This is the reality. Of course, in America, where there is no more free speech, then, uh, of course, this kind of talk is not accepted. But I live in a free country, Thailand. <laughs> it's a royalty, it's not a democracy. Well, we don't, one thing is, I don't, we don't censor on the show, so I'm here to listen um, to your viewpoints and just ask more questions. On the gold side of things, do you, do you like to own it, like, physically? Do you own it physically? Yes. Okay, okay. So, and what, when you say... Yes, um, I need to clarify one point. Uh -huh. And this also applies to all assets, say real estate or gold complex and uh, precious metals in general, and uh, also, uh, say, <laughs> companies that own large asset base. Now, in a bear market for assets, say, the property values drop by 30%. But the stock price can drop by 50% or 70%. The stock price is more volatile than the physical. So now you can buy in Hong Kong property companies at, say, a 70% discount to asset value. I do concede that uh, the property value will continue to go down not likely by 70%. You understand? And now, since you asked me about gold, for a long time now, gold shares, the mining stock sector, is incredibly low compared to the price of gold. So I hold physical gold for security, and I have it in different places in the world. But if you want to make money, in the next uh, rise in gold prices, I think gold shares will be very attractive. This yeah. is one of the few sectors in the world among assets that is very depressed gold mining companies. I want to explore some other opportunities with you. And, um, you know, you have this framework of um, gloom, boom, and doom. And so it sounds to me like if I go back to the top of the conversation, would you say the U.S., because um, the market is rich, is that more in the gloom phase right now? How do, how do you contextualize that? And do you still want to be allocated? Uh, do you have allocation to U.S. equities or anything in the U.S. at the moment? Well, uh, I seldom invest uh, in the U.S. because I'm a foreigner and have some concerns about the treatment of foreigners in futures in future. And also, uh, there are uh, estate duties issues for foreigners holding assets in the U.S. But uh, to make a point, I said at the beginning of our interview that the world is very complex because just to say the S&P or the NASDAQ or the Russell 2000 index is such and such, 
is probably going to be wrong in future. Because the latest rise in stock prices from the February-March 2020 lows has been narrow in the sense that the so-called fun stocks plus semiconductors have performed exceedingly well, but the typical stock hasn't done well. And you had simultaneously a bull market in a handful, I mean, say 20 stocks, that drove the index higher because they have a very big weight. Uh, Apple and two or three other stocks may have a larger weight than all the energy sector. The energy sector, which was in 1980 at 33% of the S&P in terms of weighting, market capitalization, now was less than 5%. So you have some stocks that are very expensive, in my view, where the expectations are overly optimistic, the so-called error of optimism. And then you have some sectors that are very depressed, including energy stocks. They are cheap partly because of this ESG movement and so forth. But I believe people will go, will regain their sanity and eventually see that you cannot uh, generate sufficient energy that is efficient with windmills. I mean, for me, this is one of the weirdest ideas of a sect of uh, uninformed people to claim that we need windmills to power on uh, <laughs> power stations. They are unreliable and uh, environmentally very damaging. And two, the EV movement, I mean electric vehicle movement, will also be seen as something that increases the cost of a car for nothing because most of the power stations are still powered on by fossil fuels. So, uh, to answer your question, there are some sectors that are unduly punished and some sectors that are unduly rewarded, like the farm stocks, Facebook, Amazon, and so forth. I think uh, the hedge fund industry is all in, I mean, even retirees, they don't care about what the company does as long as there is momentum. So if the momentum moves up and Nvidia and so forth, but I wouldn't invest in those stocks. I would now go into value stocks. And I think a big change coming now in the next 10 years is that unlike the last 10 years, when index funds became very popular, that in the next 10 years, uh, stock selection, the active managers who disregard the level of the S&P, they just buy stocks according to value criteria, uh, low price to book, low price to sales, low PE, and uh, high dividends. According to these criteria, people will probably be able to maintain uh, the value of the assets in real terms. 
I repeat, real terms and nominal terms. Because during an inflationary period, nominally everything goes up, but it can fall in real terms for two reasons. A higher cost of carriage, namely higher interest rates as an example for some assets, and two, through the loss of purchasing power of paper money. Or the currency can go down. It, I'm not, not sure it will go down a lot uh, against the euro because the euro is not much better and the financial conditions in Europe are not much better. But it is likely to continue to drift lower against gold, silver, and platinum. One more question on the U.S. before I broaden out um, globally. There's been debate here on the economic front Um a lot of economists last year, most economists and analysts expect a recession that did not transpire. And it seems this year the baseline scenario for economists is a soft landing, maybe a soft-ish landing. Do you have a viewpoint on maybe more of our economic picture or outlook here? First of all, I started to work in 1970, so I've seen a multitude of recessions and depressions and collapses in markets and so forth. And I can say one thing, at the beginning of a recession, uh, usually only maybe 5% of economists see a recession coming and the others, they are dreaming on uh, about their optimistic uh, outlook and projections. So the fact that now so many people are kind of... Uh, predicting a soft landing or just a slowdown. This also some people say it's possible that this will happen in nominal terms. But as I repeat and keep on repeating, the question is about the standards of living of people. And in my view, the standards of living of American people began to go down and it's going to go down further. Just look at the security at the security issues, I mean, the country is not as safe as it used to be. I mean, I was all in favor of the uh, flower power revolution in the late 60s and so forth. But it was, these were peaceful demonstrations by and large. There was not uh, this uh, angry and uh, horrible criminality that we have nowadays in inner cities and we didn't have the uh, the homeless problem the way we have it today but the same goes for europe we didn't have all the muslims in the in the 60s and 70s one of the things you're also known for dr faber is um you're a bit of a contrarian, I suppose, and you can find um, maybe some of the more unconventional investment opportunities. Let's broaden out. I heard you at the top talking about emerging markets maybe being attractive. Where are you allocating today? How are you thinking about the portfolio that you want to construct for this kind of environment? Well, uh, I'm Swiss, so I have a Swiss passport, so I always have some assets in Switzerland, also properties. And... Uh, I also pay tax in Switzerland. <laughs> and uh, I have, of course, living in Asia for such a long time. The bulk of my assets is here in Asia in terms of properties and stocks. 
But uh, recently, at the beginning of this interview, we talked briefly about the warmongers at the State Department in Washington, D.C. If they really want to go to war, they can provoke a war with just about anyone. And uh, in my view, there was a strong provocation against Russia by wanting to include Ukraine into NATO. This wasn't agreed at all in previous uh, agreements between the West and Russia and so forth. But anyway, if the war comes about, the war zones or war theaters will be somewhere in Asia, I guess, uh, between the, the war involving China and the U.S. and the West. And uh, another war theaters will be probably in Eastern Europe somewhere and in the Middle East. But one region that will be, in my view, relatively untouched will be Latin America. And so this year, and already last year, I started to invest in Latin America. And I like Latin America. It's relatively uh, low. There are desirable assets in Latin America. And I will continue to, to invest in Latin America this year. But having said that, I'm not very optimistic about financial assets for the next five years or so uh, because uh, the valuations are high. You understand? Uh, I'm not terribly interested in what the company does and what it has. What I'm interested in is the valuation low because low valuations will in the long run, I'm not talking about six months or one year, but in the long run, low valuations will give you a higher return than high valuations. I mean, all the people that bought the SPACs in late, uh, in late 90, in 2020, 2021, well, the SPACs and the, unicorns and all these meme stocks, all the peaked out in January, February, March 2021, and then they went down and never recovered at the end of 2022 when the market reached a peak in between November and January uh, 2023. The meme stocks at that time were all lower than they had been uh, 18 months earlier as well as the SPACs and so forth. So you, you, once again, you have to look, analyze the market, what is happening within the market, because just to look at the index doesn't tell you much. In theory, the index could be driven by just one stock, in theory. Yeah. Well, Dr. Faber, I have to say I've learned so much from you in this conversation, and I want to give you the last few minutes here to let folks know where they can, um, you know, read more of your work, um, the gloom, boom, and doom report. And let's leave the audience with some parting thoughts, maybe something that we didn't bring up in this conversation uh, that you'd like for them to think about. Yes, I mean, I, I think that uh, people are increasingly concerned about issues that they cannot control. 
You understand? People don't, or some people, they think, oh, this climate issue and the, the environment and so forth is horrible and they worry about that and some people worry about the war and uh, some people worry about not having enough money in their retirement. I mean, I think you have to learn through life to enjoy the present moment. And uh, of course, you should plan for the future and try to eliminate huge potential risks. Although I'm not the one that is the model in this respect, because in Thailand, it's very dangerous to drive. And I drive racing bikes, racing motorcycles. Wait, you <laughs> driving a motorcycle around Thailand? What? Yeah, I have a, a Suzuki 1000, Ducati 1100. That's pretty and, cool. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Kawasaki 1000. So uh, I, I'm prepared to take risks. But uh, I think we have to move away from always asking the government to do this and to do that and intervene here and get subsidies. Because the more the government hands out, the more power the government has. And the ultimate goal of an individual who believes in individuality is to be free. So uh, that you can wake up at whatever time you wish. Of course, if you have a job, and I had a job for most of my life, and even today, I get up because I have to go to work. But uh, being self-employed and at my age, I'm free to start working at, I don't know, four in the afternoon or seven in the evening. Uh, of course, when I have an important interview like with you, I have to hurry getting up on time <laughs> to be with your interview since I work at night. So I think that people should uh, not worry too much about uh, things they don't control. They should control about uh, their health, what is good for them and what is not good for them. And uh, they shouldn't have taken vaccines, that's clear no, and obvious. So the government lied about the vaccines. It's a complete lie that the government produced. But people say, oh, at that time, it was the best thing to do. No, you have to resist the government at all stages in life and make their lives difficult. They have to learn to leave private citizens in peace and not to enforce government regulations in schools and everywhere. And number two, I think that uh, in terms of investments, you and I, we don't know how the world will look like in five years. The one thing I can say, that when I started to work in 1970, the investable world was much smaller. You could invest in Europe, and most of the money was in America. And Japan was just rising, but other countries like China didn't have a stock market. India did; they had a stock market, but it was practically impossible for foreigners to invest there. And uh, now, so you paid attention to the Dow Jones, to the prime rate, 
to monetary policies and to corporate earnings and so forth. But it was much easier to analyze anything. Nowadays, you have the geopolitical angles, you have the domestic angles. I mean, in America, I have to say the domestic political situation is currently very bad. I mean, it's, uh, and also in Europe, we have all these incompetent green communists in power and socialists. Germany, the government managed to destroy a strong economy in just four years. Think about this. Germany was a model economy before, but the socialists and the communists destroyed it. So these are issues I would go and vote and certainly not vote for the Biden communists and socialists. That is one thing I wouldn't do. But, you know, Switzerland is not much better. I mean, the Committee for Swiss Neutrality, it's very difficult to collect sufficient signatures of people who want Switzerland to remain a neutral country. Because the socialists, they want a central government. They want Switzerland to be part of the EU. So there are lots of issues nowadays. But I'd say, in absence of knowing how the world will be in five years, you should diversify. You should have some money in stocks. I always have 25% of my assets in stocks. I have 25% in uh, precious metals. I have 25 in real estate and 25% in cash and bonds. I never changed the asset allocation. Whether everything looks good or bad, I'm kind of... I'm happy every night when I go to sleep. Or because, every day, because I think you're a night owl. You're, you're yeah, night yes, when I go to sleep at 8, 9 in the morning. Yes. Well, And the, my report, they can, uh, I mean, people, if they want to, uh, I have a website. Gloom, boom, doom. I repeat, gloom, boom, doom. And everything is there. I have two reports. One is a bit cheaper. The other one a bit more expensive. But the conclusions are essentially the same. It's not that in one report I say buy this and uh, the other report I say sell this. But uh, the expensive report is uh, academically more detailed. Well, Dr. Mark Faber, editor of the Gloom, Boom, Doom report. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. All of your ideas. Really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Faber. <laughs> Thank you very much. 